Good morning. If I were to uh, to look at my life in dispensations based upon cars, I would have had several of them. Some evolutionists would probably have some comments about this, by the way. It started with Ramblers, and then it moved to uh, Ford Pintos, and then to uh, Volkswagen Rabbits, and finally to the uh, Toyota clan, which we're presently in. It was uh, in that uh, Pinto dispensation, by the way, I owe this to Pat Wallace because I bought my first Pinto from him. Never really forgiven him for that. <laughs> 1974 orange Pinto wagon. My girls did not fight over who got to drive it, but it was uh, actually, it wasn't a bad car, but you remember the Ford Pinto was the one that had the gas tank explosion problem. And, and so there was a lot of talk about that. And one time I was listening to Click and Clack, you know, those characters that talk about car repairs. And, and somebody wrote in a question and they said, I know that Porsche has a user's club, a user's group, and Mercedes-Benz has a user's group. And I was wondering if there was a Pinto user's group. To which they replied, no, Pinto users have a support group. <laughs> Well, some of us, I think, when we look back on the Old Testament and especially on the tabernacle and the temple and the worship that took place there, we, we look back on it sort of as the Ford Pinto of the Bible. And, and we find ourselves not really eager to think about it or study about it uh, because it seems to us rather second class. But I'd like to remind you of the perspective of the Old Testament saint regarding the tabernacle and the law and, and later the temple, which was its more permanent replacement. By the way, I'm, I'm, I sort of speak interchangeably about the, the, uh, the tabernacle and the temple. The, the tabernacle is the laptop version because it's portable. And wherever Israel went, their God's presence, remember, led them and followed them there. And, and, the, and the temple is sort of the desktop. It doesn't move around, and, but they're be really essentially the same in terms of the function that, that took place. But if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, here's the Old Testament saints' perspective, or what they should have had as their perspective toward these things. It says, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it um, as, as the Lord is, is near when we call upon him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? So that gives us the perspective. When you look at, at the... Uh, at the psalmist, as he writes in Psalm 119, his regard for the law. He says, oh, how I love your law. And, and the psalmist, as they're thinking forward of worship in the temple, they look forward with great desire and delight. So I, I suspect that we need to watch out as we're thinking of this in a sort of a retro kind of way. We're looking back from where we are. And if we're, as it were, driving a Toyota now, we may be looking down on that Pinto. The reality is that Pinto sure beat walking. 
by a long stretch, and it was the finest thing there was. You know, it was the luxury car of its day, if you want to put it in those terms. No other nation had a religion or a worship like that of Israel. That should be our perspective. Now, let me talk about our approach in this. The general subject is that uh, the, the, the whole matter of hope and change. Hope, the Christian's hope in, in our world today. And I've chosen to sort of uh, take off a little ch- chunk of that and talk about the hope of heaven in, in four, unless I lose control of myself, four messages. And I'm doing that in the light of progressive revelation. That is, I'm looking at how the subject of heaven is developed in the Bible, starting with the Garden of Eden, which we talked about last week, moving to the tabernacle and the temple, which we're talking about this week, and then moving to uh, the incarnation of our Lord, which I call heaven came down. And now the temple is, is among us, or as John says, he tabernacled among us. Uh, and then the last will be more focused on the epistles as we're still looking forward to the new heavens and the, the new earth. But we're looking at the, uh, the uh, temple and the tabernacle as prototypes. I actually brought the book with me by uh, Greg Beale on the tabernacle. It's thicker than this one that I just got from Ron, uh, where he has done a study of the tabernacle and the temple as a prototype, and he sees Eden as the first tabernacle or temple, but a prototype that follows all the way through the Bible. So this uh, really could have a lot more time uh, devoted to it than we're going to do. But the real issue after the fall of man in the garden is how can sinful men, I think I left a word out of there, didn't I? How can sinful men dwell in the presence of a holy God? That's really the issue. And so you'll notice that God provides the, the covering uh, for Adam and Eve with the, with the uh, uh, animal skins, and that assumes a sacrifice that has been made. And so it was through sacrifice that men were able to enter into the presence of God. But once the nation Israel comes along, the question is, how does a nation, as Moses is going to say, a stiff-necked nation of hardcore sinners... I have to giggle about this. When you, when you have a class on total depravity, I, I, I don't know whether that was a class on how you get there or how I got there or how to be better at it, but I, I could ace that class. And, and, and Israel was full of total depraved people who were sinners. How do they enter into God's presence? Or to reverse it, how does God dwell among them? And so I want to focus for a minute, if I can, on Exodus 32 through 35 and just walk through because it seems to me that this passage, perhaps more than any other, really deals with this issue of God dwelling in the midst of sinful men and it does so in the context of the tabernacle. And that's why I think it's important for us to think about it. Exodus 32. Moses is up on the mountain. He's been gone, by their definition, too long. They want a God who is near. 
<laughs> but they're willing to settle for some junker of, of, of a golden image that, that a, a sheep farmer has put together. When he says he just tossed it together, I'm not so sure, but what that's close to the truth. He didn't throw the gold into the fire and it just popped out, but it, it was not, in my opinion, a fine work of art. So here they are seeking to have God near them, some representation of God near them, but obviously in the wrong way. That takes place in, in verses 1 through 6. And you remember then they, they begin to worship. They rose up to eat and drink and play. And it was virtually a pagan orgy that they had entered into. God says to Moses, you better get down there to your people. Uh, and you better deal with this. And then God threatens, as a result of this sin, he threatens to wipe out the entire nation of Israel and, and to replace Israel with a new nation that comes from um, Moses. And that's the point at which Moses intercedes with God on the basis of his character. He is God, and he keeps his word. Uh, and on the basis of his covenant to Abraham, that he would bring this people into the land. And so he says, in effect, I'm not arguing on the basis of the goodness of these people. We all know that's not going to work. But I'm arguing on the basis of who you are and what you have said you will do. And on that basis, God then relents. We won't go down that trail for the moment. He relents and he says that he will allow them to live. And you remember then there is the outpouring, nevertheless, of God's wrath and a little bit of Moses's too. And he grinds up that gold and makes everybody drink a little bit. I don't think that was a particularly pleasurable experience. And you remember a number of people are wiped out by a plague in punishment, but God chooses to allow the nation Israel to continue in their obviously sinful and undeserving state. That brings us to chapter 33. If chapter 32, the question is, will Israel survive? Which is really the question that seems to be there. And the answer now is yes. The question in Exodus 33 is, when Israel goes to the promised land, will God go with them? Will God be in the presence of this sinful people? Remember, God starts out and he says to Moses, you guys head on out, head on out for, for the uh, promised land that I have uh, I've assured you I'm going to send. I'll send my angel before you, but I'm not going with you. And the reason I'm not going with you is I'm holy and you're not. And if I were in your presence, you'd be dust. I would destroy you because of your sin. He says, verse 3 of Exodus uh, 33, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, because you are an obstinate people, lest I destroy you on the way. Interestingly, the people tear off their jewelry, their ornaments, which, in my opinion, remember they ripped off their ornaments just a little earlier? That was to throw them into the pot so that it could be melted down for the, for the golden calf. I take it that those ornaments are the ones they brought out of Egypt, and therefore they probably were devoted to the heathen deities and so on. They got those things off really pronto. And then you have this interesting story in verses 7 through 11, and it says that Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp. And you're saying, why the tent rather than just a tent? I take it that this is sort of the pre-tabernacle. 
And you can see that back in Exodus chapter 18 where Jethro comes and whatever and he brings him into the tent and then they offer things. They have a sacrifice to God and they all feast together in the presence of God. It seems to me that there was a place where Moses met with God before the tabernacle was constructed. And so you have this picture of it being placed outside the camp. And the reason is the Israelites are sinful and wicked. God isn't going to come at this moment in time and dwell inside the camp because they're sinful and they ought to be wiped off the face of the earth. So it's outside the camp. And you remember every time Moses came outside the camp and he went out to meet with God, the people would stand and they would worship God uh, while he went out there. And then Moses would, would come back. And it says that Moses spoke with God face to face as a man speaks to a man face to face. So here you have, in my opinion, you have this whole thing that Israel's future rests solely upon one man. In Exodus 32, whether or not they exist rests on the mediation of Moses on behalf of the people because they deserve to die. In Exodus 33, the question is, will God go with his people and be present among his people and what we see is in the midst of this camp of sinful people who, who deserve to be abolished, here is Moses who goes out to this tent and the Shekinah glory, remember, comes down to and upon that tent. And then, and then when Moses leaves, apparently the Shekinah glory leaves, which is God's way of saying, this is my man. This is my man. And he's the one who's going to make the difference between whether or not God goes with uh, Israel or not. So after that tent uh, event that's, that's put in there, then you have Moses saying to God, in effect, we want you, to, I want you to go with us. And, and he says, um, see that thou says to me in verse 12, bring this people up, but thou thyself has not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Are you going or somebody else, in effect, or an angel? Moreover, uh, thou hast said, I have known you, singular, by name, and you, Moses, have found favor in my sight. Therefore, I pray thee, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know thee, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is thy people. When God answers, he says... My presence will go with you, singular, not plural. And I will give you, singular, rest. Now Moses, remember, was offered the chance to be a whole new nation. Now he's offered for God to be with him. I would take it in the same way that, that he is doing right now, where Moses goes outside the tent, outside the camp, to the tent, he meets with God. He has a private encounter and experience with God that, in a sense, only the Israelites can only look at from a distance, a safe distance, I might add, because the holiness of God would destroy them. So Moses is not content with that personal presence of God. He pleads for God to go with them. And so he said, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known if I have found favor in your sight? I and thy people, is it not by you going with us 
that we, I and thy people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are on the face of the earth. What distinguishes Israel from everybody else? The fact that God resides in their presence. So Moses is relentless, as it were, and he appeals to God on the basis of, we'll see in a moment, God's mercy and on God's relationship with him, Moses, that privileged relationship that he has, that's the basis on which he appeals. So God says, in effect, I will do the thing, verse 17, that you have spoken of. For you, singular, have found favor in my sight. It's the mediation of Moses that is the key for Israel's survival and for God dwelling in Israel's midst. So then you remember Moses says, let me see your glory in uh, those last verses of chapter uh, 33. And then when we come to chapter 34, there's instructions for Moses to go up on the mountain. Nobody is to go with him, right? Nobody. No animals, whatever. You remember when the law was first given? In a sense, you got the yellow police tape all around the mountain. And God says, anybody gets too close to me, they're going to be history. They're going to be scorched. And, and so God then reveals himself, and he reveals his glory by revealing his character. In verse 6, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving, loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, and yet will by no means leave guilt or the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and so on on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. God is merciful. He delights to show mercy. So it is on the basis of God's glory, his character, his mercy, that Moses makes the appeal. I don't appeal on the basis that Israel's going to get better because they're, 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 they're a stiff-necked generation. But I do appeal to you on the basis that you love to forgive. And I appeal to you on the basis that you have said you have an intimate relationship with me. I appeal to that relationship. And therefore, he affirms, as he bows down in worship as a result of this, he again asks God to affirm that he is going to go with Israel. Now, God affirms that he is going to go and his presence will be manifested amongst and within the nation Israel. Now, look what happens then. In verses 10 and following, he says, I'm going to make a covenant. Now, if I understand this correctly, and, and it's possible I'm mistaking, but it looks to me like what happens is Moses goes up on the mountain and, and makes a covenant. God makes the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, with Israel. Moses comes down with those tablets, and you remember when he sees what happened with respect to the golden uh, calf, what does he do? He dashes those uh, stones on the rocks, and it seems to me the covenant, in effect, is, is, is set aside. This is a covenant where Israel has responsibilities, and they have already lost it. So in a sense, that Mosaic covenant is history. When you come to God promising to be amongst his people, he once again reiterates, and it's like he makes the covenant all over again. And so it's an abbreviated uh, form, but you have Moses up uh, in God's presence 40 days and 40 nights, doesn't eat bread and water. It looks like a repetition of what Moses did the first time, 
And now God is repeating or reiterating that covenant and saying, it's on the basis of that covenant that I'm going to do these things. And, and so it's the law and its stipulations and the sacrificial system and, in particular, the tabernacle that is a part of how God is going to dwell in the midst of, of a sinful people. Notice again, you have this bracketing of all of this, this uh, work that saves, not only saves Israel, but that, that assures Israel that God will be present within them. You start out at, at, in the early part, uh, in, in back in chapter 33, with Moses in the tent uh, going and, and communing with God. Look at the last part of verse uh, chapter 33. You've got that incident again where the glory of God comes on his face so that as Moses is going out and communing with God, the glory of God is reflected in his face and he, and he covers his face, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, not to keep people from seeing the glory, but to, from seeing the glory fade because it, it was like a battery that sort of lost its charge. And what he's saying is, in Christ, the battery's never discharged. The glory is always there, the face of Christ. But here you see this thing again. So it's bracketed with Moses. If it were not for Moses and his relationship with God, Israel would be toast. And he, of course, is a picture of Christ and how God is going to regard the work of Christ uh, on our behalf with favor. Now, when you... When you uh, uh, then come to uh, chapter 35 uh, and, and look at uh, the way God is working. Uh, anyway, those subsequent uh, verses that, that come about. He calls upon the Israelites to uh, prepare to make the tabernacle. So here's my point. Once God gets, uh, Moses has the commitment from God, God reiterates the, 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 the Mosaic Covenant and then the first thing that Moses does is commence the construction of the tabernacle. And I would suggest to you the only way in which a holy God can live in the midst of sinful people is by means of the law and by means of the priestly system and by means of the, the, uh, the uh, tabernacle. So that's, that's the way that, that I would understand all of this uh, coming about in Exodus 32 through 35. So here are the things that we find. Separation. God has to keep Israel at arm's length. That's the reason for the holy of holies. That's the reason for the holy place. The average people, the Israelites, did not go into the holy place. And only the high priest went into the holy of holies. God was keeping Israel at a distance. When someone was found to be unclean, where were they sent? outside the camp because God was dwelling in the midst of his people and so he had to keep as it were the uncleanness distant from himself and then there was the the idea of sacrifice and and it was through the sacrifice and the shedding of blood that sin was temporarily dealt with so that men could deal with God because God had dealt with their sins through the sacrificial system and then there's the whole thing of mediation. The mediation that began with Moses, but the mediation that takes place through the priesthood where men representatively uh, stand before God on the behalf of their fellow Israelites. It was those means. By the way, going back to separation for a minute. 
Israel, I always used to wonder about this when I was a kid. When God said, you shall be a peculiar people, I always thought that meant weird. And I think in our culture, it probably does. But, but basically, when God called Israel to be a peculiar people, he meant they are to be set apart. They are to be distinct. They are not to be like the Canaanites. That's why the law forbade idolatry. That's why the law prescribed the distinction between clean and unclean. All of these things were God's way of, of sort of prescribing this uh, arena in which Israelites would live that was, being, that was distinguished from the heathen world around them. And so you have this separateness that God prescribes uh, for his people, and the law helps to facilitate that. But there's also the separateness that comes from the barriers of the tabernacle and uh, the Holy of Holies and so on. So let's talk about the heavenly aspects of, of uh, tabernacle worship. You, you may be at this point and say, so what in the world does the tabernacle or the temple have to do with heaven? Well, that's where those texts that were read for us by Bill, that's where those texts come in. Those texts are saying that the tabernacle was built, go back to Exodus 25, verse 40, when God said to Moses, here's the way the tabernacle is going to be built. It's built according to the pattern that you have been shown. That's a heavenly pattern. So in a sense, this isn't really a, a very good analogy, perhaps, but in a sense, the, the earthly tabernacle is a knockoff of the, of the big one, the real one up here, and it's in heaven. So that's what the writer to the Hebrews is saying is, this was a prototype of, of something that is, that is more substantial and far greater in heaven, but this is, in a sense, a prototype of it that was given at this period in time uh, for men. It's also a picture of heaven to come from the standpoint of the prophets, Ezekiel chapter 40 and following. When you see this description of heaven to be, it's described in terms of the measurements and the characteristics of the temple. So again, we see the future, as it were, let's call it heaven, the future described in temple terms in, in the Old Testament. Uh, we also see that in the New Testament, both our Lord, individual believers, and the church are called a temple. Now, in John 1.14, we'll talk about this next week, but in John 1.14, it says, He tabernacled amongst us. But in John chapter 2, He calls Himself the temple. Destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. So in, in some sense, our Lord is the tabernacle. He is the temple of God. Uh, that came to dwell, and so the temple comes and dwells uh, amongst men. Then you have individual Christians who are called a temple. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when he's talking about immorality, he says to believers, you are the temple individually, you are God's temple, and you ought to live a life that is distinct. You cannot defile God's dwelling place by the kind of immorality that characterizes Corinth and the fallen world. And then you have the church. First Peter chapter 2, living stones being built up on that, on that one chief cornerstone. 
and you have Ephesians chapter 2, that, the, that God is building up this building. Uh, it is a temple that is a temple to God. We are, as a church, collectively, the church is a temple in which uh, God dwells. All of those say to us that the things that we're talking about when we look in the Old Testament are pertinent and they bear upon us because that same imagery is used for us. If we don't understand what the tabernacle was like, if we don't understand what the temple was like, then we don't understand what it means for Jesus to tabernacle amongst us. We don't understand what it means for him to be the temple of God or for us as a church to be the temple of God. Very important material, I think. Four, there is... Now, here's some of the things that characterize the, the, the temple worship. And, and I want you to really focus on this because, again, we tend to look... Uh, I tend to look, I have tended to look at the tabernacle and the temple as liver and onions. That's not positive, folks. That is not positive. When my wife and I married, we had one thing we agreed we would never put on our table. <laughs> that was liver and onions. I hope when we come to your house, we don't ever have that, but I'll, I'll, I'll deal with it at the time. But it is, it, it is a place of great beauty. It is not something to look down upon. Now, think about the way in which God took those craftsmen who were skilled in metalworking and they worked with not only the materials that were precious, right? Gold and and, and all those great uh, materials, the skins and whatever. But the way in which it was done, that was a place of great beauty. When you think about the temple... You think about the temple in terms of the magnificence and the beauty of that. That is a picture, of course, of what heaven is like. And, and so we, we see the, the description of streets of gold and, and whether that's really gold streets or whether it's, it's a way of saying to people who have never seen anything so great as what we're going to see there, it's like this. I don't know, but I got to tell you, heaven is a beautiful place a beautiful place. And so was the tabernacle, and so was the temple. It was the place where God manifested his presence among his people. That's where God could reside uh, in somewhat separation, but in the midst of his people. So that in Exodus 40, verse 34, you see when the tabernacle is finished, the Shekinah glory comes down and, and settles upon it. In 1 Kings chapter 8, when the temple is completed, the Shekinah glory comes down and settles upon it. So the presence of God is physically evident to the people of God. God indeed is amongst them. Now remember, after they sinned, there was Ichabod. Gone is the glory. That glory could not only come, it could leave as it did in the Old Testament uh, times. But God's presence was among them. Men had access to God through mediation, that is, through the priests who who operated in the context of the tabernacle and the sacrifices. They brought about a relationship between men and God as he dwelled amongst them. Sacrifices brought temporary resolution for the problem of sin. So how does a holy God live in the midst of a sinful people? He makes provision for their sin. Now, Hebrews makes it clear that provision was not eternal. That foreshadowed the coming of Christ and the shedding of his blood once for all. 
but it meant that men could come and feel a freedom from dread of being in God's presence and a freedom from, from dread in the sense of their guilt so that now they had a sense of, of the setting aside of their sins which gave them a, a more confidence in their access with God. Joyful, I, I've changed my title on this a little bit. The anticipation of joyful worship in the fellowship of others. I think there are several things we need to keep in mind. One is, I, when I think about the tabernacle and the sacrifices and whatever, and especially when I think about, you know, when you sin, then, then here's what you do. Man, if, if it worked that way, I, I'd have just camped out. I'd have got my mobile home. <laughs> just parked right next to the tabernacle, wouldn't you? I mean, if you had to offer a sacrifice every time you sinned, whew, it would be it would be trouble. And and I know, you know, as Dr. Toussaint used to say, somebody said, shall I fess them as I does them or shall I bunch them? <laughs> well, there was a sense in which an Israelite had to bunch them. And, and I'm thinking about the fact that when you, you cannot suppose... That, that people are daily going to the temple, other than, for instance, those who lived in Jerusalem, where they could do that. You're talking about people who are dispersed throughout Israel. And so three times a year, all the males were, were uh, required to come and make sacrifices. So what I'm trying to say is, people weren't there every day at the temple. When you read and you, you see the Psalms of Ascent, the psalmist is describing one of those pilgrims who has come from some distant place and as they are coming down the hills and they are looking up to Jerusalem, they are saying, as it were, alas, alas, we're here again. But that wasn't a, a, a totally frequent, every day, every week kind of experience, whereas we kind of impose that with our minds. That raised the level of anticipation. Not only was it a joyful occasion, not only was it a time of fellowship, but it was a time that didn't come often enough for the Old Testament saint. They looked forward to it with eager anticipation. Uh, another thing is when you think about the sacrifices and, and the offering of meat, they didn't eat meat like we do. They didn't go to every meal and say, where's the beef? Basically, most or much, if not most, of the of the meat eating took place in the context of sacrifice. Folks, if you eat the goat, <laughs> you don't get milk if it's a female, and you don't get little goats if it's a male, right? So you know, eating the goat was a big thing, and and so when you came and you offered your sacrifice, that sacrificial animal, in certain ones of the offering, there was this fellowship meal that took place, and so you have a communal meal joyfully celebrated in the midst of loved ones, this was a tremendous time of joy and blessing for an Israelite as they, as they came to uh, worship. So much anticipation and much joy in their, in their worship. I'm going to just toss this text out for you and let you ponder it. Deuteronomy 14, verses 24 through 26. This is to give you a sense of, of the joy well, let me read it to you now that I've done it. Deuteronomy 14. And again, it conveys several things. One is 
the, the sense of the distance of many of the Israelites from Jerusalem and therefore the, the, the fact that they could not frequent Jerusalem and, and, and have that kind of worship as much as we might think. Verse 24, And if the distance of Deuteronomy 14, And if the distance is so great for you that you are not able to bring the tithe, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set his name, Jerusalem, is too far away from you when the Lord your God chooses, uh, when he blesses you, then you shall exchange it for money, bind the money on your hand, and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses, and you may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink or whatever your heart desires, that there you will eat in the presence of the Lord and your God, and rejoice, you and your household. Isn't that a strange thing to, to say? You know, you, you, could, you could buy yourself a bottle of wine. What it's saying is, you are to rejoice in the presence of God. This is to be an anticipated, desired, expected thing for people for whom that is not a daily uh, event. Rest. When you look at the feasts, especially the ones where, where you have to come on those three uh, selected uh, occasions where the males have to come, there is associated with that time of worship a Sabbath. And, and so when you come to worship, you come to rest. You can't work and worship at the same time in that context. And so worship was a time of rest for Israelites. And, and for those who worked and got their bread by the sweat of their brow, that's a glorious thing, the rest that came uh, associated with their worship. The, the last thing I'd say is the temple facilitated prayer. Now, you don't see that as much in, in relationship, to ta- uh, relationship to the tabernacle as you do the temple. But remember Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 8? And he basically says, and, and Isaiah says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. That's why Jesus tossed a bunch of those folks out. Not a place of business, but a place of prayer. And it says, if when people are distant and they have sinned and they want to repent, they turn toward Jerusalem and they pray and God will hear them. So that the temple was a place that facilitated and encouraged and focused the prayers of Israelites. So it was a motivation for them to pray. Another, another way in which the temple enabled men, drew men closer to God because of the relationship they could have with God through prayer, which the temple encouraged. Okay, what does all this mean to uh, Christians today? That's all well and good, but why is that? Why do we want to spend some time talking about it? One of the things this text does, I think for me, is it underscores the holiness of God and the sinfulness of men. That is not a popular those are not popular thoughts today. By the way, they're, they're very much interrelated, are they not? It's, it's when we understand that God is holy, Isaiah chapter 6, then we understand, whoa, am I? I'm a man of unclean lips. Boy, you bet. Put us in contrast with God, and our sin just, just is glaring as a result. I, I was listening, as I, as I do on Sunday mornings, uh, I was listening to some Christian music, and they had one song by Elvis. I didn't, listen, I had nothing to do with that. (laughs) I just didn't get to turn it off quick enough. And one of the things it said was, and if I fall, he'll understand. And and I'm thinking, um, 
that doesn't quite fit. Can you imagine an Old Testament saint saying that? You know, if I, if I choose to rebel against God and fall into sin, you know, he'll understand. That's not the way a holy God looks at sin, and that's not the way a sinner looks at a holy God. It, when one sinned before God, it was a major offense to God, and it was not a simple process to deal with it. Somebody died. Something died as a result of that. And I think we've lost that. And, and it may be that some of us, because we think, well, we're in the New Testament age and we're in the age of grace, you know, that's all in the past. No, uh, church discipline. Church discipline says that, in effect, we are to have people who willfully rebel and will not repent. They must go outside the camp. Is that not right? Outside the camp. That's what church discipline is about. Ask Ananias and Sapphira about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of men. That event where God struck them dead is a signal to the church that God's holiness has not been set aside in the New Testament church. He, he will deal, he has dealt with the sins of men through the blood of Christ, but men who persist in their sin are obviously in trouble. So it has a corrective, I think, for us who are a little, not a little light. We're very, very soft on our sin and God's holiness. The whole concept of the fear of God is, is rather a lost one. And, and I think we need to be pondering that more than we do. Therefore, the sinner's separation from God. I was thinking about that, by the way, from this morning, in terms of the rock. And, and the rock is the source of the water of life in one sense. First Peter chapter 2 says, the rock that is the foundation of the temple that God is building is also the rock of offense. And it's also the rock over which unbelievers stumble. You think about that? Jesus Christ is the one who is the source of salvation for those who believe. He is also, in a sense, the basis for condemnation for those who refuse to believe in him. He is the rock of stumbling or the rock of offense. What, what that does for me is, as I look at, at what it took to deal with sin the magnitude of the process that, that, that God had set up to deal with Israel's sin, it tells me the magnitude of the work of Christ to deal with all of our sins in one sweep, as it were, at the cross of Calvary. Think about the, the, the guilt and the shame that fell upon our Lord as seriously as God takes our sin. Think about that. Think about the effect of the salvation that is produced by our Lord. Think about the freedom of access that we now have as the veil was rent and the separation and the barriers are removed. The freedom of access that we have and the joy that we have in being able to come into direct communion with God through him the magnitude of the work of Christ. When I look at the Old Testament and then turn to the New, I say, what a relief, what a relief, but what a great work Christ has done. An appreciation for how much better things are for saints today. I think we've forgotten how bad, in a sense. It was, it was good. It was not bad. It was good. The New Covenant is better but when you look at the contrast between what they saw as good, and rightly so, 
and between what we now realize God has given to us, doesn't that produce within us a sense of gratitude and joy and wonder at what God has done for us that we, of all people, would enjoy communion with God through Christ in the way that we do. Therefore, Hebrews 10, we should draw near with confidence. That's what that song said. We should draw near with confidence, knowing that the price has been paid. Let's talk about abuses for a second. Israel had a tendency to idolize. They idolized the brazen serpent. Remember? That's uh, found in 2 Kings 18.4. They actually had to destroy the brazen serpent because people began to take that that symbol, that vehicle, and began to worship it. And so God had to destroy it. Israel, unfortunately, began to worship the temple itself rather than the God who was to show his presence in that temple. And that's why you see in Acts chapter 6, you see the accusation against not only Stephen, but the accusation against the apostles was that they spoke against the law and they spoke against this place. And when you go back in the Old Testament and you think about the Israelites and you remember when, when, when the Babylonians were going to come and were going to destroy and the, the, Israel, the people of, of Jerusalem and, and Judah, they, they thought about making alliances with Egypt and, and other things, but they felt that if they stayed in Jerusalem by that temple, God couldn't allow them to be overcome. He couldn't allow them to be judged. In other words, the temple itself became their God, not God. And that's why God tore that thing down stone upon stone, Old Testament and New. The temple itself is not God. The temple is the instrument that brings us to God in Old Testament sense. All right, I'm holding off my fire because we know that in the New Testament of the book of Revelation 21, 22, There is no temple, for God is their temple. It's not in a sense then that that there is no temple at all. There is. But God is the, the, the place where his presence resides in heaven, and the building is not the focus. It is rather God himself who is the focus in heaven. Well, I would just say, in terms of how we do it, I'm just going to pick on one thing and I'll quit. I call it worship light. Worship light. It's that kind of worship that has a that like a drive-in. You can go in California, you can go to the drive-in church and you can put your quarter in or whatever it is in the movie theater and you get your little dose of church and then you go on. Or, or the church which says, uh, we know you've got a busy schedule and so we'll try and arrange it to where you can go to church on Friday night. That way it leaves you free to go out on the lake for Saturday and Sunday. Worship light, light on sin, light on the righteousness of God and the holiness of God. And and I have to say, when I look at Israel's worship in the Old Testament, it ought to sober me up. It is so much better in the new, but it is not worship light. And, And so I ask myself this, with all it took for an Israelite to get to Jerusalem, to offer their sacrifices and to enter into God's presence, how much thought do we give Sunday or Saturday or the week preceding How much thought do we give in preparation for what's going to happen on Sunday morning? How much thought do we give it? I'm suggesting to you that may be worship light. And the problem then is not with worship. It's not with God. The problem is with us. 
It ought to be worship heavy. This ought to be the time when we joyfully anticipate coming together with brothers and sisters as, as it were, the dwelling place of God and celebrating the magnitude of the work of Christ in our place so that we could have fellowship and communion with God. I pray that each one of you has come to that point where you have come to him as the stone who offers living water and through the death of Jesus Christ pays the penalty for your sin and gives you access to God without all of those barriers and hindrances. If not, then he is the stone of offense and that is a terrible encounter to make. Father, we uh, thank you for this text, these texts, and, and we thank you for the way in which you have given sinful men a way of access to you. Thank you for dwelling in the midst of your people. Thank you for dwelling not only in our midst, but through your spirit, dwelling in each of us who believe in Jesus. May we take that very seriously. And we wait for that day when heaven will come and the true temple will be here and we will devote ourselves entirely to the joyful worship of you. In Jesus' name. Amen.